Welcome everyone to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com Giants reporter. And we're here with the Giants at 2 and 10. Yes, it continues to get uglier. A Monday night game on the horizon in Philadelphia against the Eagles. But really the only thing people want to talk about now, it's the only question I get from everybody is, are they firing Shermer? Are they firing Gettleman? Are they firing both guys? And that's why, who makes that decision? Ownership. Who's in charge and ultimately responsible for the state of this franchise? Ownership. That's why this is going to be the ownership episode. And we're going to talk about the Giants being 2-10. and 10. If you really want to point fingers, that's where we have to start. You have to start at the top. Because... They're ultimately responsible for putting the people in place that made some of these decisions. They're ultimately responsible, in this case more so than most, of rolling back Eli, continuing to go down that road and trying to make it work. Instead of rebuilding when they should have, in what, 2017 when it started? And that, when you're talking about John Mara, who really is the hands-on, day-to-day kind of owner, and Steve Tisch, who's uh, involved, but not in the building every day. Spends half, half his time on, the, maybe more, on the West Coast. He's got Hollywood in him. He's a producer. Got a new movie coming out. Always has a new movie coming out. This is the one, uh, I forget what it's called. Uh, part 3, The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. But I digress. Anyway. For me, when you want to look at why the Giants are where they are, we have to look at ownership. That's where you should start. And that's why when you need, when you look at it, to me, I look back to the end of 2017. To the whole Eli benching, Ben McAdoo firing, that whole situation. That, to me, is where it all really started falling apart. Because, remember, they have a good year. Okay, it was it 2016? They have a good year. Uh, they make the playoffs. They go 11 and five. 2017, they go three and 13. Everything falls apart. But you understand why in 2017 they were trying to win and going forward because they were coming off a good season. They had a lot of bunch of good players on their team. That the team was pretty much stocked with good players on both sides of the ball. You know, there was some real difference makers. The Odell Beckham's of the world. Uh, the uh, Damon Harrisons at the time, and Olivier Vernon was playing at a high level. Janoris Jenkins was playing at a high level. Landon Collins. So they had players. But everybody got injured in that 17th season. Everything fell apart. Ben McAdoo kind of lost control. Guys were getting suspended. He benches Eli Manning. We all know the story. And then the Giants go back on it, fire McAdoo, and... The whole makeup with Eli stretches another two years. So who ultimately do we look at? Whose fault was that? You got to start with the owners. Okay, it's their job to make sure that that was handled right. They didn't. Right? Ben McAdoo's not making any moves to put Eli Manning on the sideline or come out or concoct this plan without running it through ownership. So they didn't handle that well. And then the decisions afterwards is where you could really look at it. And that's why the Giants are 
where they are right now. Now, I understand some people want to go back. They want to go back even further. So they should have never got rid of Coughlin. They should have got rid of Jerry Reese at the same time. But you have to be realistic. They were losing at that time. Okay? Tom Coughlin had things. There were things going on with Coughlin on the field, behind the scenes, that it just wasn't wasn't running smoothly anymore. The Giants were becoming a mess. So to me, you move on from there, I get it. Now, Jerry Reese, he just won two Super Bowls as nine years as a general manager, which is a pretty darn good resume for a general manager. So they decided, okay, we're going to give him an opportunity to hire a coach, being at least involved in that hire because we know in the Giants, again, goes back to ownership. So we're going to give Jerry Reese an opportunity to get it together and regroup this team. They gave two years there. They decided, okay, McAdoo and Reese, that wasn't going to work out. They cut the cord and said we're going to start over. Which, up until that point, from an ownership perspective, I look at it and say, okay, aside from the whole ridiculousness of the benching Eli Manning and then going back on it, and like they knew what was going on. So they had an opportunity there to, okay, move the franchise forward. It's time to move forward. We have a new coach, a new GM. We should start over. But what did they do at that point? This is where ownership really went wrong, in my opinion. They hired Dave Gettleman. They want to go back to the old way of doing things. They want to go with what they're comfortable with. They're not ready to move the organization forward, right? They want an adult in the room. They hire Pat Shermer at that point. It looks right now. The results, what do they say? 7-21, and 21, they say those were not the right decisions. And then trading Odell Beckham, getting rid of all all their you know outspoken players, pretty much. I mean, this, this, this stuff is stuff that traces back to ownership. So you look at John Mara, and you look at Steve Tisch, and you say they have to shoulder a lot of this blame. There's no way around it. They own the team. They ultimately make ultimately make the decisions. They're the ones who hire the people that they put in place to make the football decisions. And the one football decision that we're all pretty sure they had their hands on was the Eli Manning one. And that prevented the organization from starting over, rebuilding, and moving forward when it should have two years ago. And now we're sitting here at 7-21. and 21, and where is this organization? They're a mess. Now, taping this on a Tuesday, I was at an event today. Had a chance to chat with Steve Tisch. Okay. He was being honored at a March of Dimes event, a sports luncheon. And uh, talked to him about the potential for changes. He said they hadn't, they weren't going to make any changes now. They weren't going to say anything or talk about moving on or doing anything with any candidate, you know, head coach, GM, whatever, until him and John Mara sat down, which was going to happen after the season. Okay? But he, Steve Tisch did say they have to be very honest about where they are as a franchise. And that he's obviously, I mean, the fans are upset. They want everybody gone. He's also just as upset where the organization is at 2-10. and 10. To the point where Steve Tisch went up to accept an award for leadership, and, you know, he started making jokes about, you know, he he knows the situation. They're 2-10. Got to take it on the chin. He's making jokes about how, yeah, 
you know, if if they made this decision on who to honor about leadership, you know, during the season instead of before, they probably wouldn't be asking him because the Giants are two and ten. And he also said something about uh, getting up there and taking the microphone and not fumbling the first Giants, you know, I think running back, not the not the fumble in twenty ten or something like that. So, you know, he's taking it in stride. He knows what the organization is right now. He knows it's not good. John Mara knows this too, even though he hasn't really spoken about it. But trust me, the Giants are well aware where they are as an organization at 2-10 and 10, and the butt of the jokes around the NFL right now. That irks this ownership group, I'm telling you. You talk to them, you know them, that bothers them. John Mara, if you ever see the the gif of him throwing the chair. I mean, that's John Mara. Not that he throws chairs, but he is super emotional during games. Gets very upset. He used to sit in the press box. I think I told this story before. And you could just see the steam rising from his ears and the reactions, the pounding of the tables. So, yeah, they know where they're at. And they know that they haven't done a good job either. Because the reason... Or at least the who's most responsible for seven and twenty-one over the last two seasons. Ownership could look in the mirror and say, "Raise their hand." I don't have to say anything. Just raise their hand. It's me. It's us. We put these people in place. We wanted to bring Eli Manning back. We weren't ready to move on. We wanted to try and continue to win, or continue to try and win. I should say, because I certainly haven't continued to win. They wanted to continue to try and win while they made this transition into the next era of Giants football. And you know what? It was a bad, bad mistake. And now they paid the price with two awful years. Worst team in the NFL since the start of 2017. Worst team in the NFL since the start of 2017. Man. So that's where the Giants are heading into Monday Night Football against the Philadelphia Eagles. In dead last place in the NFC East. There's one team in all of football worse than the Giants. It's the Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati Bengals. Which for the Giants, at least, is going to mean a good draft pick. They have a chance to get the number one overall pick. 20% per ESPN's FPI, which does a bunch of projections. So project them. That's just pretty high. 20% 20% to get the number one overall pick. 20%. Right? I mean, the Giants, are, they they just picked number two overall two years ago. Made all these changes. Now they might be back in the same spot two years later. Yikes. And so my takeaway from listening to what Steve Tisch said, about how they need to be very honest. And look, when you talk to them, ownership or whatever, and you give them an opportunity to talk and express their opinion, they could easily just say, "Okay, uh, no, we're gonna we're not changing general manager. We're bringing we're gonna bring Dave Gettleman back, or whatever, or or Pat Shermer. Either one, they they could shut that door right away, like that the Jets did with Christopher Johnson did on Adam Gase. But the fact that the Giants, to me, left it open was for two reasons. One is because you never know what happens. Last time." They said they weren't going to fire Ben McAdoo. This was like with six, seven games left there that that 2017 season. 
said they were going to fire Ben McAdoo, but then, you know, the, you, you know what hit the fan. And everything changed. The Eli Benson came, and next thing you know, they had to get rid of him. So they had to backtrack, and then they looked bad because they, it, it was, they basically didn't want to make a change. Had said they didn't want to make a change, and then all of a sudden they did make a change. So they don't want that happening again. And the other reason is, because I don't think either one of them is 100% certain to return. That's Dave Gettleman, and that's Pat Shermer. Neither one is 100% to return right now. That's my takeaway of that. Now we'll see if that ultimately comes true. Now, Dave Gettleman obviously has a greater chance probably to stay than Pat Shermer, in my opinion. But it's also possible that very hard look at the organization that John Mara and Steve Tisch take says to them, hey, we need to get rid of both of these guys. We need to start over again. Again. Because too many mistakes have been made. Go down the list. Culture. They need to fix that culture. That was their problem. They fixed the culture. They're not leading to victories. They traded Odell Beckham Jr. They allowed Landon Collins to walk. Right, all these moves. I mean, all these free agent signings that they made. Nate Solder. How does that look? Alec Ogletree trade. How about the trade for Leonard Williams right now? How does that look? The Giants, who are two and ten, traded for a guy in the middle of the season. Who's going to be a free agent? They traded draft capital for him. This team needs draft capital out the wazoo to fill the holes that they have right now. The 2018 draft class doesn't look so great anymore. Who knows about 2019 draft class? Sure, there's some positives. But you probably need three seasons to know where you are. So if we aren't 100% sure on 2018, we're darn well aren't, aren't sure what 2019 is yet. Now, Daniel Jones does look positive. And that's the big one. And that's the card that both coaches, both, the, both these characters can play is... We drafted Daniel Jones. We're developing him. The GM, I picked this guy. The coach, I'm developing this guy. If Look, if Daniel Jones goes out and lights it up in the final five weeks of the season and the Giants win two games or so, two or three games, they're, they might look at it and say, hey, it's best for our future and for Daniel Jones to bring it back. We think these guys can get it right. I wouldn't rule that out. I wouldn't rule it out. But if it's more up and down, if there's more losses, loss after loss after loss, embarrassing loss after embarrassing loss after embarrassing loss, which the Dolphins, which first of all, Monday night against the Eagles, if they lose big, that would be ugly. Okay? The Dolphins and then the Redskins losing to those two teams, yeah, there'll be an overhaul. So at these last five games, five, five right now, Giants are two ten four last four games. Sorry, they're gonna they mean a lot for the future of the franchise, and the ones that are gonna be making the decisions is ownership. The ones who we need to look at right now, we need to look at themselves in the mirror and say, "We've got to get this right because we made some bad mistakes in the past few years." Now I'm gonna roll this into a Jordan on a beat real quick because this is the portion of the show where I tell you what it's like to be a Giants reporter or an NFL reporter, or somebody covering the NFL in general. And my first 
hint that something was wrong in this Giants organization. I came in the middle of the 2013 season. So they were 0-6 when I came. They beat the Vikings on that Monday night where Josh Freeman played the worst quarterback game in NFL history uh, for the Vikings. So anyway, I come, and the Giants still, right there, think about it. They're two years removed from being from winning the Super Bowl. So this is the second Super Bowl in four years. So this is an organization that's very well respected. They do things the right way. This is the perception. You know, they're well run, good people. They know how to conduct business. And my first hint that there might be something wrong here was I go to the Senior Bowl that year, okay, and the Senior Bowl is a bunch of scouting, okay? So on one side of the stadium is General Manager Jerry Reese and his crew. And the other side of the stadium is Chris Mara. Chris Mara, by the way, is the Vice President of Player Evaluation. And he's on the other side of the stadium with some other people. And it almost looked like the Giants had two different personnel groups. Like that was the that was my perception. And you're like, what? And then you come to realize that Chris Mara is essentially okay, there's the general manager at the time. There's Jerry Reese, okay? At the top of the to- the totem pole. And then to me sits Chris Mara above the assistant GM, who's Kevin Abrams, right? And then Mark Ross at the time, he's below them. He's the uh, vice president of player evaluation. But right below Jerry Reese and above the assistant GM and the vice president of player personnel is Chris Mara, John's brother, has a football background. But you realize that's ownership. Ownership being involved in personnel decisions, which is always tricky. Always tricky. And I believe Chris and John's nephew is also, they also have a nephew who's involved in personnel who's there. Obviously not as, not as big uh, a role or title, but here's why it's tricky. Okay. You wonder, is that really the way you should be operating? This is what you made fun of the Dallas Cowboys for, for having ownership, making personnel decisions. Because the reality is Chris Mara owns the team just as much as John. All their siblings do. There's a whole bunch of them, Chris, John, and at least an older sister and like four or five other siblings. They're all owners. They all own half the team together. So the reason John Mara didn't originally want to hire Chris as a general manager because he wanted it when Jerry Reese got it was because you can't fire family, right? You don't want to hire anyone who you can't fire. But now... They could be rolling through another general manager, their second, what, in four years? If they do change, this would be their third in four years. But then Chris Mara would still be in there. And obviously some of these personnel decisions he's heavily involved in. But you're making all these changes, and these guys who maybe are making mistakes, I mean, let's be honest, they're all probably made mistakes at this point. So I'm sure there's guys that Chris Mara liked uh, that didn't pan out. I know... um, Adam Biznawadi, offensive lineman for Pittsburgh, was one that apparently was Chris Mara's guy. Uh, Davis Webb, I believe, it was a Chris Mara guy. Because remember, <laughs> uh, Ben McAdoo's the coach at the time, 
And he says, I have to, I like to see, I like to see and hear a quarterback throw. And then they draft a guy in the third round. And guess what? Ben McAdoo had never seen Davis Webb throw. Never. And I know the personnel department wasn't that high on him. Mark Ross has said this publicly. Was a huge Davis Webb fan. But yet the Giants somehow draft him. And that's how you know, that's where something is wrong. You don't want ownership involved in personnel. Making those decisions. Fine, you want to be involved in the Eli decision. But you don't want to be involved in the drafting of players. Ownership being involved in the drafting of players from top to bottom is a dangerous proposition. And one that, quite frankly, isn't going to work very well. The Dallas Cowboys only got better personnel-wise when they basically were able to take Jerry Jones's fingers and lift them off the buttons of selecting guys. And it seems like they have him quieted now in that regard. And Stephen Jones isn't out there making personnel decisions. Now the Cowboys, we know they still have their struggles, but I'm talking about their roster, which is pretty good. So this, to me, was the first hint that the Giants weren't this well-run, well-oiled machine that everyone had them pegged as. And that ownership maybe was part of the problem. And it turns out, what, seven years later, eight years later, that we realize they don't have this down. They need to look, take a, a look in the mirror and fix it. You know, for the, in order for this organization to head in the right direction and get back on track. And with that, on to the next one. Let's bring in a former Giant, a guy who's still around the organization plenty. I see him on the sideline of practices a little bit this summer. You see him at the games. Former Giants linebacker and captain, right? Jonathan Casillas. Three-year captain? Two-year captain. Two-year captain. All right. I wasn't sure. For some reason, I thought you might have been the captain. That was actually Ogletree who became the captain before he ever played a game there. Uh, so you became a captain in your second season, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. You're around the team. You're looking there. You're you're watching this Sunday. You're watching this team and this defense. What are you seeing with this team right now? And what's it like for a guy who is on a pretty good defense and to see it become what it is now? It's tough to watch, man. You know, um, I'm pretty sure the guys, you know, when they're watching film, you know, uh, Monday, Tuesday after they lose, uh, which they which they have the last eight weeks. You know, it's tough, man. It's a lot of missed tackles. A lot of look like blown assignments. You know. Um, you know, it's a good players in that locker room, you know, but uh, they're just not playing together right now, you know, as a unit. When you're on a defense, right, and you're the captain and you're looking around and there's missed assignments, and there's a lot of them because, like you said, that, that's that been a problem this year. They've given up, the, I believe, 14 passes of 40 or more yards, right? That's pretty tough. Like, you have wow. to just let guys run around, right? Like they let up eight all of last year. Why? What? What can you? What, what can you put your finger on of why there could be that many missed assignments throughout a, a season? I, I know they got a lot of young guys, but is, is that you think that's the would be a primary culprit? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, when my first year in fifteen in New York, I think I was like year seven, so I was you know I pretty much knew how to you know how to prepare myself for games and for practice and mentally and. Physically, all of that, you know, I'm, you know, very well vested in at that point in my career. Right. But then there was a young guy we drafted really early from the University of Alabama, a very talented guy by the name of Landon Collins. Mm-hmm. When he came into the organization, mentally he didn't 
grab it as fast as we all hoped him to. But he had two people who really, really helped him. Craig Dahl and Brandon Merriweather. Now, they were the unsung heroes of 15 and 2016 because they got our best defensive player ready every game. They did that. They would watch extra film with him, you know, let him, you know, let his confidence get built up. Because Landon, as we all know, is a tremendous player. Right. But anybody who comes in the league and gets thrown in the starting job right away, Daniel Jones, maybe not Saquon Barkley, it's a whole different story. Right, right. But, you know, there's, you know, certain guys. Certain positions, you know, you gotta, too, for sure. Yeah, cer- yeah for, for sure. And in 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 the signal callers, in, in Spagnola's defense, he wanted the safeties to make the calls. Right. And I, would get, I used to get frustrated at Spags because Landon to be a little bit slower. And I'm like, I know what the hell we're doing. Right. Let me call it. Let me tell him. You know, he's like, oh, I don't want you doing that. So it was a little bit of a process to get Landon through that. And, and I don't know if you remember in 2015, Landon was – He had a rough year. Some tackles, but he had a rough year. And then the following year, we all put, we came off, we all came together, and we had a very good uh, uh, defense, statistically defensive year, defensive statistically, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, you um, were. It doesn't matter how you right, cut it. it you were really good defensively in 16. A lot of guys after meetings, before meetings, between meetings, at home. That's what it really takes. And I'm not saying they're not doing that, but if they was doing that you would probably see progress throughout the year, and that's not what we're seeing. Right. I mean, I also look at it, and I, I mean, to have four basically rookies playing in a secondary against Aaron Rodgers, I mean, how are you going to yeah. have success that way? That almost seems – it almost seems impossible to be able to have – like, he's just going to pick his point. You know, he's I'm going to pick on this guy today. Like, he, it seems like he could just do that. Yeah, you know what? I, I've never beat that dude. You know, he's um, – <laughs> He's tremendous, you know, and, and if you're out of position, you know, he's going to capitalize on your mistakes. You know, he gets outside the pocket. Those receivers in Green Bay run an, another route. So whatever route they were running before, once he moves outside the pocket, they run another route. And right. No one does it better than Green Bay. Maybe Seattle's up there um, with, you know, the way with Wilson. You know, they've been. Yeah, with Wilson and the way they've been, they've been running their offense. Um, you know, and, and, man, I watched that game. Those running backs in Green Bay was running really hard, really hard. They, they, but but you see you see the difference. You know, I'm not saying Saquon wasn't running hard, but uh-huh. Saquon was getting hit in the backfield. You know what I mean? It, it's you know this this team needs a lot of work, man. They, they got a, they got a lot of they got a long way to go. You know, and um, it, it sucks because usually, you know, um, when you when you see promise in a team, a young team, you see them get better or just improve on some mistakes as the season progresses. Right. Let's go over to the other side of, of the of the stadium, the Jets. The Jets had a, the hiccup last week, but they've shown progress. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. But like, you know, I'm 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 watching every game, and I'm like, I'm coming away from the game like, yeah, it's kind of what I thought. Daniel Jones is he surprised me, and he's kind of what I thought he was. And I think we got to allow him to make the mistakes. But the, the Giants, we're, we're just we're just putting too much on his plate. You know, we got him. We got a rookie quarterback from Duke. Right trying to win games for in New York like him himself you know what I mean he didn't have Saquon for a while and you know receivers been in and out Evan Ingram's haven't played in a while you know and um we're asking a lot from that kid and you can see his talent but then you also see that he's a rookie and he's gonna throw interceptions which he's doing you know and uh 
I mean, it's a tough situation to be in, but I like the kid. I like him a right. lot. I was about to say, do you, do you see enough from him that makes you be like, okay, I see, you know, I can see that throw there, that throw there, this play here. That makes me think he can ultimately turn into that guy. Yeah, but he got to chill out with those damn turnovers. Two things, <laughs> two things, two things, Jordan. So, number one thing I've been saying before he started the the, the pick start rolling up right. uh, was, number one, he got to stop getting hit. And I'm not talking about sacked in the pocket. I'm not talking about that. Yep. I'm talking about when he gets outside the pocket, when he's running the ball, or when he – remember the one time he threw a block and got crushed? Right. Like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, preserve saying, yourself. You need to preserve yourself in this league as a quarterback. Bro, you're, you got a whole state and city and Jersey, New York, <laughs> like Connecticut, some parts of Connecticut. We're all freaking – all of our hopes and dreams rely on you, bro. You know what I mean? And, um, He got to protect himself better. And then, like I said, not in the pocket when he's running out of bounds. He got hit running out of bounds because he didn't go out of bounds. Dumb dudes – uh, these defensive players, linebackers, uh, safeties, corners, they will knock your block off. Yep. And if they know that you're susceptible to being hit, they're going to hit you. They know that. Oh, he doesn't know how to slide. So if he doesn't look like he's going to slide, you take his head off. You know what I'm saying? Like, not yeah. figure, not, not, you know, no, figuratively, right. of course, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, and, and that's, that's a very scary thing for me to see. So that was, like, one thing I was concerned about. And then now, you know, this point of the season – I'm concerned about the turnovers because it's like, bro, they're running trap coverages. You're overthrowing guys. Like, you got to chill out. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's why it would be nice to have that support around him, right? So you weren't asking him to do all these things. I almost think this coaching staff at times has too much confidence in him. Yeah, I think so. I think so, too. I I think so, too. you got to protect them, and I don't think they're doing that. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're just seeing him, like, raw. You know what I mean? Like, just – we're going. We're seeing Daniel Jones raw. We're seeing all his flaws in his first year, but that's a good thing if he can capitalize on these mistakes, right? And correct them and learn, and then and then right, and then week thirteen, week fourteen, and we see in progress. You know, better throws, not too many overthrows. You know, what I'm saying maybe taking a sack instead of throwing an interception, like little things like that. Let's go back a little bit because I want to talk about that 2016 season, right? That's when everything finally went right. It's the, it's the only winning season now in the last seven years. Man. Uh, but what made that defense so good all of a sudden? Like, what was it that that year that everything sort of came together? You know, to be honest, uh, a lot had to do with uh, what we decided to do in training camp and and kind of just be around each other a lot more. Uh, Kelvin Shepard had a lot to do with that. You know, he came over from, I think, Miami. Yeah, Miami. Very respected guy in the locker room. Very, very yeah. well respected. He's um, like me. He's like a people person. He's talking to everybody, you know, gets everybody involved. You know, and in training camp, we would, you know, we would all get lunch and stuff together. And, you know, we would all, you know, kind of be around each other a lot more. And then film started coming up a little more. And we started talking about things and, you know, guys started hanging around each other a lot more. You know, and and I'm and I'm you know good friends with a lot of those guys still. JPP Snacks and Devon Kennard, guys that went on and still doing their thing in the league. You know, but we all came together, man, and we formed like a real brotherhood. Like football itself was a brotherhood, but then you got guys who actually spend time with each other away from the locker room. You know, and that's what we right. did. And honestly, that I think that was the reason why we did so well. Um, a lot of big personalities, though, man. 
Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> Does that, that make it hard to keep everybody together? I mean, is that part of why you think it crumbled so quickly? Or what do you, what do you put on that then? Uh, I, I don't know, you know, because there's there's always big-name guys, you know, um, like Alec Ogletree coming in, you know, getting paid the amount of money he's getting paid. But say, you know, he's, what, year 28, whatever year he's in. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, he comes in, you know. And even Peppers, you know, he's the number one draft pick out of Michigan, you know, all world, everything, you know, and, and there's a lot of big athletes, big time players, big time athletes, big time egos. But, you know, we all have the same purpose. We all have the same reason. We all want to win. We all want to perform well. We all want to provide for our families. You know, so at the end of the day, once, that, once that's established, you know, you but that, that, that should be established already. But what I guess you have to get over is how do I talk to this dude and tell him he's not doing his job or he need to step it up or that wasn't a good play? How do I talk to him? You know, how do I communicate to him? Right. And you know, I, you know what I noticed in 2000 and in, in, in 15 and 16? Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the young guys, um, Andrew Adams, uh, Thompson, a lot of the younger safeties, they were a little apprehensive to, like, speak to JPP. And to speak to Olivier Vernon, like I remember one time, the safety comes up and he whispers to Olivier Vernon, like, "Hey, move over, <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, 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 move over." And I'm like, "Yo, you better yell at him because that's your job. You know, you got to do that. You know, so like little things like that, you know, are big plays. You know, on Sunday, right? You know, touchdowns on Sunday, twenty yard runs, like you said, forty yard passes on Sunday." You know, so little things like that, if you know OV and you know he don't, you know, respond or he can't hear you, that's a personal thing. That's You got you to gotta learn him a little more. You know, it ain't just the X's and O's. It's bigger than that. You got to know who you're working with. I knew that I was working with Landon behind me. I knew Snacks was in front of me. He would jump a gap if he sometimes. JPP, he might be out of <laughs> He might not be in the right spot. Right. You know, but <laughs> after the first year, you learn that. You know, that's why we struggled in 15, because we was just learning each other. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And we put it all together. So I'm just hoping that these guys will learn it. Then you get you the know, seventh. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I thought you were done. Because you, you can turn it around. Yeah. You can turn it It's a lot of teams that went from bad to good, and a lot of teams that went from good to bad. You right. know, so you can turn it around, and you can keep the same guys in there. Maybe add a piece here and there. Draft a couple, you know, good players. You know, maybe a guy from Ohio State. You know what I mean? Yeah. Add a real difference maker. It'll, it'll help them for sure. So you get to 17, though, right? And things just – you're the captain. How how do you try and keep things together? Because it seemed like, especially defensively, right, you got having guys suspended. And I know you're, you're – I believe you were injured during a lot yeah. of this part. So I how do you – hurt in that Charger game when all the receivers went down, too. Oh yeah, so that was week five. So how do you try and keep everyone together, and why why didn't it work? Yeah, that was that was hard. Um, that year was a was a tough year. That was my last year playing. It was a tough year for me because physically I couldn't I couldn't put myself out there, you know. And I tried, and just you know I ended up retiring because of it. Right. Um, you know, so that's a tough year for me to think about it. But at the same time, you know, uh, we're all professionals, man, and we got to just line up and do our jobs, you know. And I don't know if it was um, carryover from – let me take that back. <laughs> there was some carryover from the year before. I felt like, and I've said this before, 
this is probably the first time I've said it, you know, like on air or uh-huh. you know, not to my friends. Um, sober. <laughs> <laughs> the Giants haven't been the same since the Hail Mary in Green Bay. Right. They haven't been the same. No. That, that's what I was thinking. That game, which happened to be, you know, that's basically known as the boat trip game. Was a, oh, yeah, was, was sort of yeah. the downfall of this, you know. Every, from there, everything just fell apart. Yeah, man. Ben McAdoo was gone less than a year later. You guys just went eleven right. and five and made the playoffs. He was gone less than a year later. Insane, insane, it's crazy. Life moves uh, at you fast, I mean, right? I mean, and I, and then you know what? People give McAdoo crap. I love McAdoo. I really do. You know, he was one of the the only coaches that checked on me. You know, when I say checked on me, I had some epidurals and stuff good put in my neck and my back. And, you know, he reached out to me to see how I was doing. And I had some stuff going on. My daughter, he reached out to me to see how I was doing. So, you know, like, I got a lot of respect for him as a man. I think uh, coaching-wise, he made some mistakes. Um, I think the, the the biggest mistake, as we all know, was benching Eli. Right. That I think he did that. Didn't go well. I think he panicked. <laughs> yeah, I think he panicked. You know, and uh, he was just trying to you know, uh, have an answer for, you know, questions that there was really no answers for at that time. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was, I think it was a bad move, and I think it cost him his job and potentially his career as a coach in the NFL, you know, and it sucks, but at the same time, I feel for him, and the huge thing Jordan was, he never got to say bye to the team, he never got to speak to the players, he was just gone. Like, they just, like, he's it, that's it, bro, you're out of there. And what was like, guy's reaction to that? Well, I mean, we all wanted something. You know, we all knew we had, to, you know, something. But I wasn't really around too much because I was hurt. Right. You, you know the, what I mean? Like you were dealing was, with the neck, right, at that time? Yeah, you know, and I was kind of, like, emotionally, like, upset at just my body kind of breaking down on me. You know, and uh, it was 17, like I said, it was, it was a tough year for me. Right. Um, you kind of knew that was the end and you, you just not, having it. Not really. Um, subconsciously, because, maybe? Like, you knew you were yeah, getting there? Right. And that's what I never felt before. I never felt that 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 I don't know if I'm, you know, I don't know if I want to play anymore. I've never felt that in the back of my head. I never. Yeah. This is the first time I said they were retired. You know, right. I never said it before. You know, I, I told myself I'll stop playing if I get another serious injury. I've said that before. Um, you know, but it was just it was different, and the losing the losing didn't help either. You know. Yeah, of course. You know, I, somebody told me once. I think it was uh, Matt Hasselbeck. Said the second you start thinking or the idea of retirement comes into your head, you're basically already retired. Right. That means that means you're already thinking about it. That you're you're already started. You're not. You're in the off season. You're not quite training as much. You're thinking about life after football more. And so the second you do that, it's basically over for you. So, yeah. And I think there is a little I could, truth to I that. I with that, for sure. Yeah. So, you played for some pretty good coaches, though, along the way. Yeah. Who was your favorite? Yeah. I and mean, tell me, what was it like playing for Bill Belichick or Sean Payton? Oh, man. Um, Bill, it, it, Bill, I got a lot in a few months. You know, I was only there from uh, late October. Where you got traded, February. I believe, right? Midway through that yeah, season? Yeah, yeah, So, it was uh, basically November to February. Um. You know, but uh good few months though. Bit, you came away with a ring, didn't you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> nice one too. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was. Um, I was able to speak to him several times 
and like just there's a reason why New England wins every year, and it's not Tom Brady as much as we all want it to be. You know, it's all Bill, mostly Bill, uh-huh. and then you know it's like eighty percent Bill, nineteen percent Tom Brady, and one percent. The Bacordi twins. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, um, but he, uh, Bill, he runs, uh, I don't even know how to compare him. You can't really compare him to anybody, but it's like whatever, wherever you come from, whatever you've been doing, you have to basically unlearn it and you have to learn the Patriot way. And that's a real thing. You know, uh, one thing that I could uh, put out there that, I think puts them above and beyond everybody else is that he has them prepared on Wednesdays. Like the game plan is in Tuesday, Tuesday night on the iPad. Uh And you come in on Wednesday and he's really drilling you with questions, but not like who's the tight end and you know, what's their favorite routes. Who's the third tight end? How many catches (laughs) does he have? How many touchdowns? Um, You know, what's their scheme What's their third, like, just things like that on Wednesday. So subconsciously, he's making sure you are working so hard already. Like, you're not, you're not just, you know, started preparing, that you're already fully prepared 100% going deep into it. Otherwise, he's going to basically catch you with your pants down, huh? Yeah. And and he doesn't, like, he doesn't run a certain scheme. You know, he picks and game plans every week to take out what the other team does best. Right. And there is no one, I think, maybe you could, you know, speak into it a little bit. I don't think anybody has ever done that on a level he has done that. No, I agree. I think that's his single best quality. He's he's chameleon-like, where he'll go in and change his game plan completely one week to the next. It'll be a power running team one week and then a spread offense the next week. But the fact that he's able to get them to operate effectively in such a short period of time is what's amazing. That most people just, they wouldn't be able to get their guys to be able to switch that quickly and look like they even know what they're doing. And he does it and you look like the best team in the league. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a culture that he's established to basically, like, you guys are buying in and you're going to do what I want you to do. You're not going to come here and be that 100 a tackle, 100 a year tackle, 100 tackle a year linebacker. Because right. you're only going to play two out of the four snaps, you know what I mean? You're right. only going to be on the field on first and second down against certain personnel. And then maybe... You know, when you don't look too good in the first half, you might not even play in the second half, buddy. <laughs> you know, like, and, and you got to be okay with it because next week he might focus on you and he puts you in a blitz package where you're unblocked. You know what I mean? So right. you, you got to be prepared, mentally prepared for that. And I feel like the roster that they have now, especially defensively, I won't speak for the offense because I think we all kind of know the struggles they're having over there. Yeah. But defensively, you know, and, and I was a part of a great defensive uh, unit with uh, Revis and, and Browner. Like, the fifth corner was Malcolm Butler. The fifth corner was Malcolm Butler. You know what I mean? And we all know the career he's been having. And yeah. The, 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 the impact he had on a Super Bowl game, of course. You know, but this is the most <laughs> talented on defense I think the Patriots have been maybe ever. And that's you know, a big, that's and a big comment right there, too. That They're playing at a very high level. Like, 
I don't care what anybody says. Hightower is one of the best linebackers in the league year in and year out. Mm-hmm. He's made tremendous plays on the biggest stage. And Jamie Collins is right there with him. You know what I mean? So, And the other guys are playing really well, too. Van Noyle of guys. So we got totally off topic. We're talking <laughs> about coaches, and I'm talking about rosters. And stuff. <laughs> hey, people like Bill Belichick, man. He's a fascinating character. So what's next for Jonathan Casillas? What are you up to? What are you doing? I got a couple of things that I'm up to. I'm all over the place, though, Jordan. Um, you know, one thing I had, I was doing, I was getting into cannabis. So I have my own CBD company called Jade's Garden. I had to kind of take a big step back from that partner that I was supposed to be working with didn't go as I planned. So, you know, it's a learning curve for me. You know, I'm, you know, I'm getting into this space, like away from ball and business and, right. um, you know, and, and I had a conversation, uh, well, yesterday at the game, not yesterday. Uh, Sunday at the game with uh, Brandon Jacobs and Victor Cruz, you know, and I was telling them like, look, I'm I'm stepping into unfamiliar territory, to where, you know, I come from football where every single person, even the, the last man on the roster, has been tried, tested, uh, put through the put through the you know the 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 works to get right. to the point they're at. Yeah, and the grinder. Very capable. They're very capable to do to do their job. They're very qualified to do their job. Very much so. You know, whether they perform, you know, highly or not, you know, that's up to them. But they are very capable to do their job. You know, they beat out plenty of guys over the years to get to this spot. And now I'm in, going into business, and I realize it ain't like that. Right. <laughs> you know, you got guys, you know, that's claiming that there are, you know, certain things, you know, certain, you know, positions, CEO, whatever. Um, you know, you, and then you start talking to them, you be like, bro. Did you lie on your Instagram? <laughs> like, did you did you make up your LinkedIn? You know, like you're not a smart person. You know, <laughs> and that's where I'm kind of like just taking it slow and just learning, and you know, kind of like uh, you know, teaching myself a lot of things. I'm back in school. I'm getting my MBA at Fordham, so I'm getting my executive MBA at Fordham. Um, so that's awesome. Um, I'm learning, man. I'm doing a lot of philanthropic work. Um, we have, uh, uh, I think, one more day left on this. Uh, reason for the season in New Brunswick, uh, Jen Olowski, she has a GoFundMe that she's uh, raising $10,000. We're maybe like a $1,500 short um, to get 400 kids gifts in New Brunswick, um, basically like a whole school gift for, for the holidays. And it's such a great deal. And, you know, I heard about it a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, my God, I got to be a part of this, you know. So this is me, you know, I'm always doing stuff, but, you know, I want to be able to help other people with their efforts because that's, that's what I want. You know, like that's, right. I would love to be able to orchestrate that, you know, but I just want to be a part of it and help in any way I can. So, um, Jen Olowski, uh, it's called reason for the season and it's a GoFundMe. I have it on my Instagram. So, which you know, you could send remind everyone where you're in, remind great. everyone when your Instagram is, what is it? Jade 82. Is Jade underscore fifty two? Fifty two. I don't want to say eighty two. I made you a wide receiver. <laughs> you were a superstar sprinter in New Jersey, so maybe that's where I got it from, right? Hold on, repeat that. You were a star sprinter. What do you mean? I, I, I know, I know. Didn't you? Didn't you set like records? Basically, come on. <laughs> I could, I could run. I wouldn't say superstar sprinter. Hey, hey, you know, hey! Come on. As further you get away, you can start exaggerating a little more. Okay. <laughs> That's how it works. Right, right. <laughs> Thank you. So go support. Go go to go to Jace Jonathan's page, uh, Jade fifty two on Instagram. Help him out there. 
And uh, we appreciate the time. Thanks so much. This was, this was a fun conversation, Jonathan. Thank you, man. Good talking to you. All right. On to the next one. Well, that was fun, talking to Jonathan Casillas there. Went back a little bit to the glory days for the Giants, or the glory season of this bad run here. So a uh, little insight into, you know, what was right and what basically has gone wrong at this point. So uh, with that, though, we're going to wrap up this episode of Breaking Big Blue, the ownership episode, I call it. And first, let me give you a prediction for Monday night. Giants, Eagles, two struggling, struggling teams. The Giants have lost seven straight. They lose, I'm sorry, they lost eight straight. They lose this one. They tie the franchise record for consecutive losses. And the Eagles are struggling too, badly. There's something wrong over there offensively. Carson Wentz is not playing great. He's not playing like the MVP candidate that he was two years ago before the injuries came. But somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to win this one. And who's the home team? Who's the better team? Who's the team that's dominated this matchup for years? It's the Eagles. So I can't, in good with a good conscience, take the Giants to beat the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday night. Eagles, get right game for their quarterback, 33. Giants, 18. The Giants are going to have trouble. This is, I mean, this has been a real problem again, the offensive line and the way they've blocked. Daniel Jones has taken a lot of hits. I believe he leads the league in quarterback hits taken. And remember, he's played two less games than everybody else. He didn't start all every game. Not everybody else because not every quarterback has played 12 games. But he has played 10 games, and he's getting pounded. And this is a good Eagles front. And this is partially why they've dominated the Giants in recent years. Fletcher Cox, Brandon Graham, guys like that. They've just feasted. They've just had success pushing the pocket consistently, getting pressure without having the blitz. And you know what? It's going to happen again. And it's going to lead to more turnovers. And it's going to lead to another Eagles victory. 33-18, Eagles. Oh, boy. I mean, 2-11. That's where they'll be at. That's it for this episode of Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host, Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com. Remember, you can always reach me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, email. Don't call my house. But everywhere else, feel free to reach out. I'll try and answer your questions. We'll do a Giants After Dark next episode. I promise. I promise I'll try and do it. Promise. I shouldn't make promises, right? I always get myself in trouble. I take back that promise. I take it back. I do. Anyway, that's it for this episode. See you next time.